Welcome to A Ticket to Ride. This is a real, raw, uncensored look at the end of life through the eyes and heart of a hospice nurse. Confessionals, education, and normalizing death and dying, because let's face it, our society just doesn't talk about it. Before I get into things, I want to explain why I chose to name this podcast A Ticket to Ride. It's because at the end of life, when a person enters the transitional stage before they start actively dying, it's common for people to start saying things like, I have to take a trip. I want to go home. I need to board the train. Loved ones usually try to reorient them because they think it's nuts. But in all actuality, it's totally natural and pretty cool. So I heard this song one day. Obviously, it's a Beatles song. And thought, that's it. The play on words was just way too fitting. Okay, so hi. <laughs> Um, welcome back. On this episode, I want to focus on the basics of hospice. What is it? How and when do you qualify? Basic philosophy, things like that. This is all super important because a lot of this is still kept in the dark. It's very misunderstood. Most people hear hospice and think of death when really it's about living the best quality of life within your limitations for however long you have left in this body. You can qualify for hospice at any age, but there's a couple of key qualifications. You have to have a doctor's referral. You must be diagnosed with an end-stage disease, a disease that has no cure, and you must have a prognosis of six months or less. That one's kind of tricky because oftentimes this is a loose prediction. Some people we meet come on service and time is limited. And they get home, they get their symptoms managed, and then they thrive. Not because their disease goes away or gets better, but because hospice focuses on a holistic approach. Mind, body, spirit. That's our jam. This is one of the many reasons why I'm a hospice nurse. Because this is our driving force and at the forefront of most of our patients' plan of care. So I want to give you an example of a typical situation on how it would look if someone needed and qualified for hospice services, especially for our elderly. Let's say grandma lives at home independently, and one day she starts having shortness of breath. She calls 911, and they take her to the ER. They admit her, they run tests, and they diagnose her with COPD. Then they say, follow up with your primary care physician and a pulmonary specialist, and they send her home. This happens a few more times, ER, home, ER, home, back and forth. Then she falls. She goes to ER, and this time they send her to a skilled nursing facility for rehab, and then home. But she can't really be at home alone, and her COPD just keeps getting worse. She's at risk for a fall or a sudden event. She's tired. She doesn't want to go back to the ER, and she doesn't want any more tests. Her doctors suggest hospice. Families often super overwhelmed by this. They think, oh great, hospice is going to come out here and give her morphine and then she'll be dead tomorrow. But this is not usually the case. The hospice team comes in and assesses the situation and the needs and wants for each individual patient. We meet our patients where they're at in that moment. We offer oxygen to help conserve energy and reduce anxiety. We offer a hospital bed for comfort and safety. We go over medications that they've been taking for years. Oftentimes we discontinue them. We add new medications for pain, bowel regimen, all around comfort. 
We bring nurses and home health aides to assist with baths. We bring social workers, spiritual counselors, and even musicians. Our job is to support our patients and their family members, caregivers, and friends through the natural process of death. This could take days, weeks, months, even years. Yes, I said years. We can make predictions based on certain similarities that occur at the end of life, but when someone asks how long do they have, some nurses will put a timestamp on it. I personally choose not to do this because in the end, your journey is really up to that higher power, divine being, or God, or whatever you believe in. And just a side note on this higher power subject, I've never had any kind of relationship with this growing up. I, I was not raised around faith or religion of any kind. Actually, I didn't really understand death or anything after it. It was always so confusing to me. And I always had a lot of questions about it. And no one around me seemed to have much answers. But after years of doing this work and bearing witness to all the trippy, magical things that happen as someone is transitioning, actively dying, and as they take their last breath, I know one thing for sure, and that's that this realm we're living in is not the end. Okay, so going back to how someone comes on to service with hospice, there's a few more things to discuss about qualifications and the basic ins and outs of hospice. It's paid for by Medicare as long as you're of the age that you qualify for Medicare. And if you don't, then things get a little more complex. Most of the time when people come on service, they're open and accepting to sign a DNR. This stands for do not resuscitate, which means if you were to stop breathing or your heart stops beating, we would not call 911 or perform CPR. The reason behind this is because if we call 911, they would take you to the hospital. You could die during transport, or they could revive you just for the doctors to say, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do, and send you home. Of course, if a family member gets scared or the patient changes their mind in the middle of that crisis, traumatic you know, event, and ends up calling 911, they have the right to revoke hospice services so that you're not stuck with a bill because you may not have Medicare pay for hospice and treatment at the same time. So basically, in a nutshell, you can't double dip your insurance, if that makes sense. Um, of course, there's some gray to all of this as well, but like I said, this is the basics. And as we all know, healthcare and insurance can get super messy. Plus, most symptom management that's done in the hospital can be done right there in your home. But sometimes we meet people and they're not ready to sign the DNR. They haven't had enough time to process this new diagnosis or prognosis, and it's scary. And I don't ever pretend to understand because I have not been in their shoes. No matter how many times I've walked with someone through this, I've never been given an uncurable disease with a time limit. There's so much fear and anxiety surrounding death. I've had endless amounts of conversations with people at the end of their lives, and there's a common theme for many people, and it's fear. And it's not always the actual death part 
or the being gone part as much as it is the dying part that causes fear. And when we really dissect it, it's actually the losing control part that scares the shit out of us. Us humans, we love it. Control is our safety net. And if we aren't in control, then that's a pretty vulnerable place. What's it going to feel like to be the one lying in bed while my loved ones are caring for me? I don't want to be a burden. Is it going to hurt? What's next? Family members, caregivers, and friends have different fears. Are we doing everything right? How long will this last? What about dehydration? How will we know if she's in pain? And then the golden question, when and how are we supposed to give morphine? I'll get into this in so much more detail. Um, I've got a whole episode brewing on that subject. (laughs) Don't you worry. Um, Yeah, what's life going to be like when my loved one is gone? I've had patients on service that have been married for 75 years. 75 years. That's insane. I can't even wrap my head around that. It's like literally losing half of your soul and it's equally as heartbreaking as it is beautiful to aid in their goodbyes. But some people meet us and they're pissed and I don't blame them. They've been burned by a system that failed them. They were treated like a number. Their treatment plan didn't work. They tried to be positive and hopeful and it got them here on hospice. And that sucks. And it's a part of the job that sucks. And there's nothing I can do to change it except listen to all their stories and show empathy. They're guarded and closed off and they don't trust anyone. I had a lesson in this about six months into my hospice career. She lived at home, completely independent, 90 years old. Her son lived four hours away. He called a few times one day and couldn't get a hold of her. So he called for a wellness check. They found her on the ground after a fall. She went into the ER and they diagnosed her with end-stage heart failure. They gave her six months to live, but she couldn't go home. So they transferred her to a skilled nursing facility for rehab while her son arranged caregivers and hospice. The first time I met her was the first visit after admit. I walked in, her caregiver was in the kitchen. She was sitting in the dining room at the table in her wheelchair. I introduced myself. Hi, I'm your nurse. How are you feeling today? She said nothing. I followed it up with my usual questions. Are you having any pain today? Any shortness of breath? When did you poop last? She said nothing, except the chart said she was alert and oriented times four, so I was really confused. Did she have a change of condition? She just sat there and stared at me. Well, more like stared through me. Then her caregiver said, oh, don't worry, honey. She won't talk to me either. There wasn't much I could do that visit. I hated that. So I left. A few days later, she was on my schedule again. I was dreading it. I was supposed to fill her pillbox this visit. So I walk in. She's sitting at the table. Looked like she had just finished breakfast. I tried to make small talk. Again, nothing in return. So I start filling her pillbox. I'm sitting beside her, going over everything she's taking. What is it? What's it for? She picks up a pill bottle, starts tapping it at the edge 
of the table. I explain the medications for her heart, a steroid to help her appetite and energy, stool softeners. When I'm done, I ask her if she has any questions about anything. She looks me dead in the eyes. She stops tapping the bottle and she throws it at me. It hits me right in the middle of the forehead and drops to the ground. I'm in shock and I say nothing. Then she says in a stern and quiet elderly voice, I don't know you and you don't know me. Why the hell should I trust you? I was doing just fine without all these medications and all these strangers coming and going and telling me what to do. Get out. So I did. I got in my car and looked in my rearview mirror. Gnarly red bump right between my eyes. I had just received a big slice of humble pie. And in a way, I kind of deserved it. She had a point. I just didn't see it right away. So a couple weeks later... I had to see her a few more times. Each time I got that nervous knot in my stomach right before I'd knock on the door. But after about a month, things started to shift. Little by little, I could feel her letting her guard down. She had started opening up a bit. She would ask questions and I had answers. She had pain and we were able to find a good regimen that didn't make her feel loopy or euphoric, which was one of her biggest fears. She started to share stories and share golden nuggets of wisdom with me. She would laugh and I would hold her hand when she would cry. She desperately wanted to get better and stronger. So I didn't kill her hope, but I also didn't fill her with unrealistic expectations either. So one day I showed up and she said, I have a surprise for you. She told me to take my shoes off and stand in the middle of the living room in front of the TV. She had ordered an at-home Tai Chi class on VHS from a late-night infomercial, and we would do Tai Chi together during our visits. But mostly it was me doing it and her critiquing me from the couch the whole time. (laughs) Eventually, she started to decline, and I ended up moving out of the area when she was still on service. It was a hard goodbye, but not as hard as the one that came a couple months later when her nurse called me and said, she's dying. I thought you might want to tell her goodbye. So she put the phone up to her ear since hearing is the last sensation to go. So I took a deep breath and I said, thank you for letting me take care of you. And thank you for teaching me one of the most valuable lessons I've learned in life. That trust is earned. It's not just given, and it should never be assumed or expected. I told her goodbye and that I'd hopefully see her again in some other life. I know she heard me because the nurse said she gave the thumbs up and even cracked a little smile. So friends, this is hospice, and this is why I care so deeply in spreading the word of this process. Be an advocate for yourself Be an advocate for your loved ones. If you think that your loved one could benefit from the support and care of hospice, and these scenarios sound familiar, the dance between the hospital and home, the words, I'm tired, I don't want to keep doing this. These are signs that you might qualify, and it's time to bring up the conversation with your doctor. I've heard from families and patients so many times 
I wish I would have known about hospice sooner. I wish I would have known about this kind of support so much earlier. I wish we didn't wait until the end. This makes me so sad. And it also makes me frustrated. There are some amazing doctors out there that understand quality of life. And they know when it's time to suggest hospice. We are so thankful for them. But unfortunately, there's still that so many that don't. And I blame our healthcare system for this. It's not all bad, but it's not a holistic approach. We are whole people. Why wouldn't we want to be treated this way? It was intended to be this way, but we lost sight of this somewhere along the way. Western medicine is taught to treat. And by doing this, they diagnose, they prescribe medications, and when this doesn't work, there's physical therapy and surgery and then more medications. You wait in the waiting room for God knows how long. You get your vital signs taken. You're asked your history. Your doctor finally comes in and starts typing right away. Oftentimes, they barely look up from their screen. I know this because it's happened to me too. I have also been burned by our system. I know this is probably super controversial and kind of seems strange coming from a nurse, but this is why I was chosen to work in hospice because our approach is the opposite of this. In hospice, the patient drives their plan of care. What I mean by this is that they get to decide if they're capable, what they want and what they don't want. They have choices and they're able to decide for the most part how they want their death to go as far as comfort and symptom management. There's an outcome in hospice. And the amazing part is that our bodies know how to do it. Just like we knew how to be born, we know how to die. I often refer to death and dying like labor. It's natural, but it's work. It's hard work. And it's not like the movies. Weird stuff happens and things we've never seen before happen. It can be peaceful as long as your symptoms are managed, but it's work. And with life comes death. It's inevitable. But how is it that we still ignore it? Our society doesn't talk about it. And then when it's our turn or someone we love's turn, we're super awkward and it's uncomfortable. We think of every term imaginable to make it sound better. We say phrases like, everything happens for a reason, or he's in a better place, when really none of these things ever make anyone feel better. Goodbye is goodbye, and it's fucking hard. Not only is death the death part hard, but the grief that comes with it is even harder. Grief is a complicated thing, to say the least, and it goes on way past the actual event of death. There are so many stages to it, and in hospice, we see a lot. So my point is, is that I'm here to help change this, the stigma and uncomfortable part about death. I've never really had a platform to talk about this where people can hear me besides the people I'm caring for, the people inside their homes, the people who are actually going through it. I've been wanting to talk, yell, and even scream this from the rooftops at times. I'm so grateful that I have this secret. I've learned the importance of life. And in the end, the only thing that matters is the love you made. Family and friends who are chosen family. That's it. 
When you strip it all away, that's what's left. Who's standing around your bedside? Sometimes it's multiple generations. Sometimes it's a partner. Sometimes it's an old friend. And sometimes it's me or someone like me, a nurse, a home health aide, a spiritual counselor, or a musician. I wish you could all see it and experience the beauty in a natural, peaceful last breath to drift off to sleep. It's exactly the way we could all hope to end this chapter and move on to the next. So I'm going to keep talking about it. And I'm also going to invite my friends to come talk about it and my colleagues to come talk about it. Next episode, I'll have my first guest. I'm super excited. My dear friend and fellow hospice nurse, Annika Erickson. Uh, She's going to join me to discuss her journey in becoming a hospice nurse, um, why she loves this work so deeply, and her own personal relationship with death and dying. So once again, thank you for being here, and thank you so much for listening. I hope this gives you a little peace of mind and a little more insight to the end of life. Peace and love.